You're listening to the Sill Podcast, perspectives on art and technology with Peter Noche and Harry Posner. Episode 51, The Undefinable Spirit, The Greening of Hope with Laura Campbell. Don't stop your light from shining on Cause nothing's ever over Till you say it's over And nothing's ever finished Not unless you walk away So we have Mother of Two proprietor of Pia's on Broadway restaurant, one of the best restaurants in Orangeville, I have to say, Green Party candidate in the last provincial election, PhD student of international relations. Uh, We have Laura Campbell here as our special guest on the podcast. Welcome, Laura. Hi, thanks for having me. How do you manage to balance all of that stuff I just mentioned in the intro? Mm, It's pretty tough sometimes, but in general, I just deal with things as they come. So it's pretty chaotic. Uh, Sometimes the house gets pretty messy. Uh, (laughs) And in general, it's just a lot about uh, my husband, Shell, and I supporting each other and other family members coming in to help out. And the kids are kind of getting to the age now, too. My son is in JK's and my daughter's going to be starting childcare, um, daycare, preschool in September. Mm -hmm. So it's just kind of getting into that age with them where they're kind of doing their own thing during the day. So yeah, it's it's a lot of balancing things and prioritizing some things at certain times of the year. And the big thing is too, is just people have to expect that I'm slow with email correspondence, which mm-hmm. I'm sure you guys know because you've yeah. emailed me a few times. <laughs> so generally the best place to get a hold of me is just by a text message. But yeah, it's, I don't know that I do the balancing very well either. I mean, not to be self-deprecating, but I think that I don't, yeah, I try my best, but I don't know how much I'm succeeding at balancing at all. I just kind of try. As far as I can tell, you're succeeding wonderfully. Thank S- successful you. business, great run in the last election. Kids are mm-hmm. fabulous and healthy. That's a success mm-hmm. in my books anyway. <laughs> it's true. It's true. And I think that it's really just like the restaurant at this point, like we've been doing it since 2009. So it's not that it runs itself. And there's a lot of challenges. Like right now, we're pretty understaffed. So I'm here a lot. I'm here right now. I was actually working five minutes ago. So there are challenges. But for the most part, we're doing pretty well. So I think, yeah, it's it's good. Actually, how did you acquire the restaurant from you folks? So my husband, Shell, and my mom, opened it together in 2009 as a bakery and um, I was there too kind of helping out just with the opening of the the business and then after about a year I was starting my PhD so we moved to the city and then two years later my mom wanted to retire so she just was ready to do other stuff and she wrote a cookbook and she kind of wanted to work on that so she told Shell and I that she was going to sell it so we were like no don't sell it so we um we bought it off of her and just continued on doing what we do because everything on the menu basically was Shell anyway like he had created the menu and done all the bread and with my mom's input and everything so we just kind of came back from the city moved back to 
mono and uh, yeah, started doing that full time. So you grew up in Prince Edward County in Ontario among farms, Mm -hmm. nature and so on. And how -hmm. do you think that affected who you are and your interests? Massively, I think. I had one of those magical childhoods that I'm really trying to give my children the same thing. But I, my sister and I basically, my parents bought a farm there in 1992 and it was 200 acres and super cheap, like under $100,000 with a pretty decrepit farmhouse on it that (laughs) they renovated. And um, my dad lived in the city during the week and he was working there at his business and just would commute home on weekends. And my mom basically just took care of some horses that we had. So Anna and I, my sister and I just played outside pretty much 24-7. So we were just up on a little bluff from Lake Ontario. And so... Near Belleville? Near sort of Kingston, Belleville area. Mm -hmm. So we were in Wapoose, which is in Prince Edward County. So when we were there, we were just pretty much outside all the time. And so now as an adult, I need that. That's kind of another reason why we moved out of the city is just because I needed to be able to have access to nature and not just nature like a park because in Toronto we lived in Cabbage Town and so I go to Riverdale or High Park and stuff like that which is beautiful but and there is lots of nature there there's lots of animals and stuff but it's not quite the same as being big open space and I think Prince Edward County still has a lot of that really kind of open space with a low population density. And just for context, when I did my master's degree at the London School of Economics in London, England, and I really had a hard time there. I was there for a year and um, I just felt pretty claustrophobic. And some people, like there's country mice and then there's city mice. And I think at the (laughs) core of my being, I'm like a deep, I'm like a backcountry mouse. (laughs) I feel best when I'm really far out, but I love small towns and small communities. And that's why I love Orangeville so much because, and especially having my business, I know everybody who walks through the door, what they take in their coffee, what they like to do on weekends. And, you know, but being outside really, and just observing nature and um, looking at the way landscape changes over time, I feel pretty connected to now, I'm guess- our natural environment, so I feel I need to protect it. <laughs> now, I'm guessing, Laura, that that connection to nature, at least part of it, and also your ability to work hard as you do, mm-hmm. some of that must mm-hmm. have come from your parents who came over from Germany, right? Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. I wanted to ask you, you know, what it means to be a daughter of immigrants, yeah, being a daughter of immigrants, I myself am fear. I'm an immigrant too. So, um, but they like in particular, my dad has that sort of spirit of entrepreneurialism and kind of really adventurous too. I mean, most of his friends were pretty well established in their careers uh, in Germany. One um, politically, he was you know pretty high up at the leading uh, political party in Germany. The other one was the European chairman of PricewaterhouseCoopers. <laughs> so mm-hmm. all of his class essentially, you know, became leaders in their industry. And my dad just felt really like it was not adventurous at all. And it sounds actually, now that I'm saying it, it's so privileged. He was very lucky to be able to come to Canada and set up a, a small business here. 
And um, to do so, I feel so lucky and blessed that we were able to come here and do that. And they really started a new life here. I mean, I don't think I have sort of the average immigrant experience story where there was a lot of struggle. Like, I think that my parents did struggle financially, but certainly they had support from my grandparents. And yeah, my dad kind of had that adventurous spirit and they they really had a lot of choice in what they could do. Mm -hmm. It wasn't that they sort of were driven from their homes or or anything like that. They really were like, let's do this. This will be fun. We don't know if it's going to, you know, work out, but let's (laughs) just go for it. So that that's a different, I think, immigrant experience than most. We didn't come here under any sort of scary circumstances. You didn't didn't um, come here under duress. No, not at all. And uh, we didn't have, certainly when my parents started their business, like it was tough. Like my mom basically raised us on her own while my Mm -hmm. dad was uh, in Toronto, but I think we made it work. So no, I think that I don't have that average experience for sure. No, it wasn't Toronto. I was raised in a place that wasn't overly multicultural. So when we moved to Caledon eventually, it was really cool for my sister and I to be able to go to Toronto and, and go to Carabana and do all kinds of cool, interesting, fun cultural stuff that we didn't really have access to when we were living in Prince Edward County. There was none of that there at, at that time in the, in the 90s. Box, box. So what's your story? I think the most important thing for you to do as a child is to understand that every day that you live, you make a difference in the world and everything you do is making an impact in this world. And you've got a choice. You can either go to bed at the end of a day and think about what you've done and feel kind of good because you've done things that made things better. You've bothered to water a little plant, you've patted a little dog, you've been kind to some older people, that makes you feel good. Or you can go to bed and, "Mm, I didn't do very well today. But whatever you do, you are going to make a difference. I started a program called Roots and Shoots for Young People, which is now in 100 countries around the world, with about 9,000 active groups, from preschool right through university and even beyond. And it's basically, Every individual makes a difference every day, and you choose as to what kind of difference you want to make. And every group of Roots and Shoots chooses for themselves, it's youth-driven, three different kinds of project to make this a better world. One to help animals, one to help people, and one to help the environment that we all share, with a theme of learning how to live in harmony between different people, different nations, and between us and the natural world. Knowledge, compassion, action is the cornerstone of our program for young people, Roots and Shoots. And this whole program revolves around understanding the problems that we've inflicted on the planet. And once you understand, then you feel quite deeply sometimes that we've really messed things up. And when you feel that, then you're ready to roll up your sleeves and get out there and take action and do something about it. It's very, very easy for any young person to find out about Roots and Shoots. We have this wonderful thing called the internet today. And there's a janegoodall.org website and there's a rootsandshoots.org website. 
Box, box. You went to the London School of Economics, so yeah. you, were, you were educated in England, but here you also mm -hmm. continued, and you're a PhD student of international studies, correct? Yeah, so, at EFT. Hmm. So aside from being elected as a Green Party member, what do you hope to do with your degree? Well, I really initially, when I first started the PhD, wanted to certainly write about international relations and, and politics and economics and whether that was freelance or inside an academic institution. And in particular, I wanted to be able to teach as a professor. But I kind of started on this path right around the time that in 2008, 2009, that the broader academic job market really collapsed. So then I got into doing hospitality stuff with my restaurant and learning about wine and food and organic food and slow food and that whole thing, um, which kind of became a bit of a detour for me and a really welcome one because part of what always drove my work is my concern for the environment and social justice and trying to build a better world. And I'm kind of looking around me and so many incredible people working for NGOs and government institutions and universities lecturing and teaching. And though that's where my skill set is, I also kind of wanted to do something practical. The whole thing, philosophy that all of us, uh, quote unquote, liberals live by, which is be the change you want to see in the world. How can I in my brief time on earth, not only set a good example for my children, but to be part of the community that's trying to build a different type of economy that's sustainable, that's locally focused. And I really think that that has to be the future if we want to build a peaceful, sustainable world. Mm -hmm. So what I'm doing with my degree, essentially, is, of course, continuing it because I'm personally interested in it. But from a practical perspective, am I going to be pursuing a career in academia when I'm finished. I don't know, but my business is very uh, busy and I, who knows, right? So I'm not entirely sure what I'm going to do with the PhD at the end, but certainly it's already done so much to inform my own thinking about the world we live in and what I need to do personally. So in both in how I conduct my business and how I raise my kids and um, how where I'm involved politically, which I think politics is something a lot of people don't want to touch because they think it's dirty or corrupt. And I just think that politics is such an important nexus of change and we can't just disengage from it and pretend that everything will be okay. Mm -hmm. um, so, I mm -hmm. mean, I could go on about that. <laughs> I've got a lot to say about that, but we have to be engaged. And it can be really painful for a lot of people because it is complex and it's really disenchanting. So, like, though I, I fully understand what's happening all the time because I've studied this for the past 15 years, I often still just want to tune it out because it gets pretty disheartening. Mm -hmm. so. Okay, so you've got these worlds colliding. You've got the retail world, the restaurant, the hospitality world, let's say. You've got the academic world that you're connected into. And then you jumped into the political world by becoming a candidate for the Green Party in the last provincial election. Can you talk a bit about that and what were the main challenges you faced in doing that? Mm -hmm. Well, the main challenge, I think, well, there's two main challenges. One, organization. We're, the Green Party of Ontario was really well organized this time. And the outcome, of course, was great for us. We got Mike Schreiner elected, who's our leader. He yep. was elected in Guelph. Um, mm -hmm. But at the sort of different riding level, we really operate almost independently. 
So in Dufferin Caledon, we do have a very strong green presence here. And uh, it's really hard, I think, to convince people to give their time to do the thing that needs to be done to win elections, which is to go door to door and to meet people and to get them really engaged on the issues. So time and just the size of the riding um, and the reality of our electoral system, which that's a huge conversation, but um, people trying to convince people not to vote strategically, yep. trying to convince people that their vote does matter when they, it's a whole definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over again and expecting a different result. So <laughs> it's hard to understand how, you know, I heard somebody say, well, I'm a pretty liberal person, but I voted strategically for the conservatives because I'm tired of, but I don't like the conservatives. I mean, why would you vote for something you don't believe in? I don't mm-hmm. really. So having those conversations, those are challenging because people are so fundamentally, yeah. they don't think their vote matters when it really does. It matter, matters so much. And also, Laura, it's also, it seems to me, about reframing how people perceive uh, the Green yes. Party, for example. And, and someone, mentioned exactly. the other, someone mentioned the other day how they were impressed by the way you framed the Green Party as a kind of craft brewery. As craft That's beer. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> We're the craft brew of politics as opposed to the other two, which are big beer. We're sort of craft beer. We're microbrew. <laughs> nice. Yeah, it is. It's such a great way to think about it. And that's really changing the perception of the Green Party, in particular among young people. We're really trying to attract a new generation of voters that really do value the sort of entrepreneurial spirit of the 21st century. I know that you're a millennial yes. in terms of the bracket. Yeah, I'm, in, I'm 32, yeah. You're 32, you're my son's age. And what do you think your generation can do to change the world mm-hmm. for the better? Well, there's so many things we can do. But certainly, I think just having hope and getting involved. And that's a really big one where I think that my generation, we're sort of the generation that it's hard to know where to go next. We're in a really big transition period between sort of the 20th and I would say 19th century economy and the 21st century economy. Mm -hmm. So we don't really, I know what I would love our new economy to look like. And certainly that means governments need to support small business and entrepreneurship because, yeah, the big sort of unionized jobs that were really our mainstay in the 1950s, 60s and 70s and beyond, those are incredibly precarious now. Mm -hmm. Um, They don't really exist anymore, still to some extent, but not to the same extent that they always were there. So we really need to build a new economy. And so that means people need to be creative. They also need to be supported in their creativity. And yeah, and so that means just being brave. And being more nimble. Yeah, and being more Mm -hmm. nimble, exactly. And I see that happening all the time. It's not just me who does a number of different things. So many moms I know run a home daycare and then they do something artistic on the side. And then it is challenging. And it's challenging, I think, not just on an individual personal level, but I think also institutionally speaking, it means that our institutions actually have to adjust to the fact that people are doing different types of work. Mm -hmm. And the best example I would give is that individuals could have a pretty 
good income, but that income doesn't look the way it used to. So Mm -hmm. they might have multiple part-time jobs or they're on shorter term contracts or they are self-employed. That means that in particular, if you're self-employed and you're going to a bank and you're applying to a loan of some kind, banks now have to be a lot more... um, Flexible. Yeah. So the old sort of standards of giving a loan or just in general, they can't be the standards anymore because if you have theoretically super high liquidity in the financial markets, low interest rate, but how can bankers actually help to create a new economy? It means that they do have to give loans to individuals that are starting a creative new business because those businesses might be the big thing of tomorrow. So I think that that's going to require... A willingness to take risks. That's right. Mm So one of the challenges that I was talking about so much during the election is that our generation's kind of like, it's hard for people to make investments in communities in terms of getting a mortgage to buy a house and start a family. That is really out of reach for a lot of people because of the nature of how banks lend and what our economy is like. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of challenges for building the same sort of middle-class society that we sort of think that we should have. So we really have to do a lot of rethinking about what our society will look like. But listening to you as you speak, the work that you're implying or the the changes that have to be made and the energy that it takes, you're talking about doing a lot of things, but you're talking with an enthusiasm that I haven't heard or seen for a while amongst my own generation. Yeah, I am really enthusiastic about it because I think that we are seeing sort of the end of the line uh, in a way of sort of the traditional industrial growth model. Mm -hmm. Uh, We know that the world can't sustain it. We know that the working conditions that model creates for the broad majority of people in the world are awful. And we really have our morality and ethics sort of growing about these working conditions. This is why massive corporations are adjusting and following better models of supply chain management and all of that because of the fact that there are a lot of conscientious consumers out there. Not tons. I'd say, like, I want to get to the point where I can say it's the norm that people buy used, buy secondhand, make sure if they are buying something new that they're buying something <laughs> like the ethos of the 19th century where you buy something and you make an investment in it that you can fix and make, know, make it last make and, it last and more exactly. is not always better <laughs> exactly exactly and and i think that we are in a lot of places starting to see that ethics spreading and i want to be part of that at every possible level because i'm really passionate about it so i try to model that and like if i am buying something new i'll always make sure to try and buy it from a company that treats their workers well sometimes i'm pained when i do have to even with something like trying to reduce my own plastic consumption it's so challenging Mm -hmm. um But we have to start somewhere. There's so many uncontroversial things that we could be doing to help out. Laura, let me ask you this, just with a kind of a personal question. Given everything you've just said about ethics and all of these things, at a personal level, do you have a kind of philosophy of life or a philosophy for living that you kind of follow through all of these permutations and combinations of things that you're doing? 
Yeah. I can't really sum it up in one sentence, but Mm -hmm. there's one philosophy that I think really applies to my physical impact on the planet. And it's the same one that I try to model when I'm in nature, but it's a really common one and it's leave no trace. Mm. And that's one that I sort of try to live by. But then it almost isn't like that because I, I want to have an impact. Right. And I just, yeah, I think just leave no trace, but also lead by example. And I just want to make sure that I'm doing everything I possibly can to fight for what I believe in. And I feel like when I've told friends of mine, like when they're upset about something that's happening, I said, I'm going to do everything to fight this. Please join me. So I think just making sure that I'm always open to people participating in what I'm doing. And I also really want to be conscientious of the fact that Everybody's different, and I want to be open and tolerant to people and definitely just be non judgmental because I recognize that I'm really privileged. I live in like an incredibly healthy part of the world. I, I have healthy children. I myself am able bodied and healthy. So, certainly, mm-hmm. I'd never pre- pass judgment on someone if they're not doing all the same things as me. So, yeah, just ultimately just to be inclusive and to help everybody as much as I can. Well, I love your energy. I love your optimism. And I think our generation has had its run for the most part. And yours Mm -hmm. is just beginning. And I'm really lifted by what I'm hearing here. Thank you. And I wish you all the luck in the world. And certainly if we can do anything to help you along, uh, Harry and I are certainly behind you. Thank you. I I so appreciate it. And we want to thank you for taking the time to speak with us. And uh, we look forward to uh, coming by your restaurant. Pia's on Broadway. On Broadway, Also, I also look forward to come by your constituency office when you win Uh a seat in the next election. Right. Yeah, we've got four years to regroup and plan. So if you know anyone who wants to join the Riding Association, send them my way. All right, we will for sure. Yeah. All right, thanks, Laura. Thank you so much. All right. I'll see you guys soon. Thank you so much for having me. All right, all the best. Take care. Right. Bye. Bye. The Sill Podcast, Perspectives on Art and Technology, is a Connecting Dots Media production. Available at thesillpodcast.com. Thank you.